0: It's pretty hard to teach curiosity. I think you have to have a little bit of that engine within your genetic template. But if you can recognize it in yourself, you can then build upon it. Ladies and gentlemen, Brian Grayson. One of Time Magazine's 100 most influential people in the world. Responsible for some of Hollywood's most memorable movies. I need a map. Say again, please. Houston, we have a problem.
1: How have you been able to consistently, you know, create mass media box office successes, movies that are that are
0: beloved, that kind of withstand the test of time? The beauty of storytelling in a cinematic and sonic form, it can really be therapeutic. If I can have movies take people on journeys or adventures to get them to that state of mind, feeling that we're grounded by faith, it's not religion. It's it's just faith. You know, it's all those things just about one-on-one human connection. Super nice to meet you. Thank you for doing this. Yeah, of course. I'm thrilled to be on. I've, uh, of course, like
1: many, followed your career for a very long time, been mm-hmm. a, a fan of, of the work that you do. And um, I wanted to say right up front that I used to, many, many years ago, I would see you in Malibu, like down across Creek, like yes. hanging out. It was when my kids were little, and I was down there a lot, like at the playground down there. Yeah. And you would always be around, you were surfing and chatting with people. And I often <laughs> thought to myself, like, I would really like to meet that guy. Like, he's such an interesting <laughs> person. He's so successful in what he does, and he just seems to be like you have a compelling presence. Um, oh, and thanks. I never was able to muster up the gumption to just come up and talk to you. Yeah. Here we are, many, many years later. Thank you.
0: Yeah, no, I'm psyched to do this. Yeah, I would. I'm, I'm actually very approachable. <laughs> I gather. Uh, yeah, yeah, um, because I love people. I mean, I love listening to their story. Um, I should have my own podcast, but I just never did it. Well,
1: you kind of have been, you just weren't recording. I, I that's mean, you've exactly been, for right. For the last 50 years, you have enga- been engaging people in these curiosity conversations, this practice that you developed as a very young person, um, where you were reaching out to interesting people uh, with no agenda other than to learn from them. And the podcast is really just a more structured, formal version of that. And, yes, you know I can't tell you, as I just told you a moment ago, I've been doing this for eleven years, and mm. it's almost impossible for me to calculate or put words to the extent to which it has not just expanded my life but nourished it in ways that i i, I couldn't I can't imagine not having done it, like it's been wow. so. It's been so nourishing and has changed me in ways people say well who who is the most important you know who what guest it, it, it it's just it's the it's the overall like macro experience of yes. of having done it and being engaged in the process of doing it.
0: I feel exactly the same way and as, and as you pointed out, I've been doing it for well when I got out of college, so it's uh, I asked myself this rhetorical question of what did I learn at USC? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You probably saw that. And I thought, not very much. Um, and then I started to reflect on what did I learn, and who did I learn that from? And then I tracked down my the, the professor that really made a difference in my life. I mean, actually stuck out and developed an awkward conversation with him during the summer after I graduated. And I thought, wow, I learned more from Dr. Milton Walpen in that one hour than I did in an entire year in his class, which I actually rather enjoyed and I learned a lot. But this one, there's just this one hour was uh, immeasurably better. And I thought, oh, I can do this my whole life. And like you, um, I don't know what it'd be like to not have this curiosity and to exercise that discipline because it's It's really fortifying, and it gives anyone that does it with sincerity a competitive advantage in life and in their in their businesses. Mm-hmm. So you don't really have to compete like I never really competed with other producers. I, I would admire some and and maybe less on some others but but basically, I was never really I was only I competed, only competed on my own standard. And the standard would constantly be iterating and, and growing because I was always meeting these new people yeah. that had new and unique accomplishments. Your grandmother told you very early that you
1: were a curious person. And despite your, your struggles in school, which you later uh, you know, realized was, was, was uh, the result of dyslexia, um, she instilled in you um, a recognition of of kind of some level of of just bred in curiosity that that was baked into who you are, um, but obviously that stuck with you and you you then make the choice to really cultivate that. So when you talk about curiosity, like hmm. what does that mean specifically? And and yes, we can all practice it, but you know, people are kind of brought into the world with varying degrees of, of a natural, natural inclination towards it.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. It's, it's pretty hard to teach curiosity. I think you have to have a little bit of that engine within your genetic template or in yourself. But if you can recognize it in yourself, even if it's modest, you can then build upon it. Just by like any kind of exercise, instead of going to the gym, you're doing this other exercise. That exercise is doing a little bit of homework on who or what subject interests you and then doing a lot of work to find that person Mm -hmm. (laughs) and a lot of groveling. I found, you know, it was constantly, you know, letter upon letter or email upon email And a lot of, uh, um, you know, sort of gritty stuff like begging, (laughs) you know, you're kind of begging assistants to tell their boss, who's probably another assistant, why you should talk to uh, Brian Grazer. Yeah. And that was, of course, in the early stage of my career. But you're still always doing it because you're taking people off their daily agenda. Um, you know, for me to drive out here to Agora Hills, it takes me off my conventional agenda. But what I read about you was something I hadn't heard your podcast, but I read about it and I was really interested in meeting you. I didn't know that we knew each other or passed each other in Malibu, which I think is kind of interesting mm. and funny.
1: The approach or kind of philosophy that I've adopted and tried to hone in this podcast is to, and it, it speaks to kind of your philosophy of of pursuing curiosity through these conversations is to, um, I mean, first of all, there's obviously a value proposition in you coming here, you have a book out and we're, you know, there's a symbiotic kind of relationship yes. happening here and there's a formal structure to what we're doing and it's gonna be shared publicly. So maybe that, that filter is kind of the way in which we communicate. Um, but at the same time, I always enter into these trying to, be as prepared as possible, Mm. but then to let go of that preparation and just be present with the person so that I can allow it to be whatever it wants to be and to not be uh, motivated by any kind of agenda or attachment to a notion in my mind Uh. of what I want it to be. And I think beneath that is this um, belief that I have that the most important thing when I sit down to do this is to try to find a way to create emotional connection and Mm. trust that whatever the guest has to impart from an intellectual perspective or whatever might be helpful to the audience will come as a result of that. But if Mm. I front load it with trying to extract information without being able to figure out how to connect Mm. with the person, um, that's backwards. And I get the sense that that's sort of the way that you approach all of these interactions that you have.
0: It is. It's so interesting that you're such a great student of that. Um, because it took me a while. I knew I was doing it, but I didn't know that's what I was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I would get. I would just be naturally dr- drawn into somebody's soul, basically, and and I would do research on architecture to meet Rem Koolhaas or to meet Doctor Jonas Salk, the creator of the polio vaccine, or even prepare for Princess Di, who I. You know, ended up sharing a bowl yeah. of ice cream yeah. with breaking then,
1: protocol in the process. Yeah,
0: you, but you have to, mm-hmm. like you, you know, you, yeah, <laughs> you have to break protocol <laughs> in order to uh, ultimately. I think you have to be un, kind of unprotected, unedited when you. Talk to people yeah real a real person, a real person yeah, yeah real person
1: which i I suspect in again going back to what makes this town rather unique or maybe a little bit different than other than other places, is that this town and especially in the industry you know in which you've been successful, is yeah. driven almost entirely on 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 transactional friendships or transactional relationships
0: yeah it it well it definitely is <clears throat> um you know, it's funny. I was talking to someone the other day uh, and uh that was a famous person, actor in show business. And I've been in this the Hollywood world for what, 35 years. But I never feel like I've never felt like anyone screwed me ever, which is kind of unusual. Mm. Um you know, because people, I don't know if what kind of language you use on the show, but you can say whatever you oh, want. Oh, yeah. Okay. So it's just, you know, it's, there are people that go, that guy fucked me, or I'm going to fuck that person. I, I don't have, I don't, I don't know if you have this ether, but I don't really have that revenge gene hmm. either. I don't, and I'm not better than all these things. I just don't have it. I don't, um, I can get angry about subjects and things and work and process and and people's, uh, if they're lazy, but I've never really felt like anyone, like, screwed me over or fucked me, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, probably any time something didn't go exactly the way I wanted it to go, I reflect upon it, and I, it was usually somewhere my fault, <laughs> I think, you know, that I... You know, because you you have to be pretty precise when you communicate um, in our business. Be, you can, I found that you can often, you can say the wrong thing, but you really have to be grounded with the right intention. And people have a, a sonar for that, for is does this person have the right intention? Are they speaking from an authentic place or a truthful place? And they people really know it. Even if they don't, know it you know mm-hmm. they just go like I don't know I just mm-hmm. didn't feel comfortable or again it's sometimes it's beyond verbal you just feel something Um so I think you want to get yourself together a person we all want to get ourselves together on that like knowing our inner truth and trying to always show that and if you're well read at the same time then you're going to be a, either a good interviewer or a good interviewee or a good person to say hello to, say hi to in the elevator and have that turn into something or waiting in the bathroom line <laughs> at, a, yeah. at a restaurant
1: I mean there's a certain level of uh, self-confidence that's required or at least a understanding of of who you are to be comfortable with you, who you are to bring that into yeah. the experience and you know this is a lot about what you talk about in the in the face-to-face book and now in the also in the expanded version of A Curious Mind, this idea of, um, you know, being real, like in Hollywood, you're gonna go into a meeting, people are gonna be defensive already. What does this person want from me? You know, their job is mm-hmm. to say no most of the time. Most, you know, yeah. And how do you get a yes? Well, you get a yes through some kind of, deploying some kind of strategy. And there's <laughs> nothing real about any of that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's completely at cross purposes with being present and making eye contact and mm-hmm. and trying to you know really understand the person who's sitting across from you liberated from the result of whatever the conversation
0: might yield. Yeah. Um I always you know cuz if if you're talking about if you're, we're talking about Hollywood and getting yeses and what that's all about I always found that if um My mission within a subject is something that has a sub is a theme that is universal and and undeniably universal. So, for example, I've produced um, Apollo Thirteen, and that is about many things. It's about this journey to, to. into space it's about training how hard you have to train to be an astronaut but it's also about um it's about a brotherhood between these astronauts they they wouldn't have survived it this brotherhood between Mm -hmm. them wasn't working you know the roles played by you know in, in apollo 13 so um First, it was hard to pitch that story because the studio executive said, well, everybody knows they made it back safely. Mm -hmm. And I said, but it's about a brotherhood. And don't we all root for brotherhoods? Don't we all root for family? And so it sort of took the executive by surprise because I didn't even want to argue the story or the ending. I just wanted to case build on the brotherhood. Because brotherhood is what, you know, one might argue that's what we're missing today in America. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have patriotism as a, 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 as a foundational endpoint that we all wanna work towards, but the bro- a brotherhood will make that work better. Meaning all of our collective appreciation for, you know, I sound, I sound so corny. Sure, but, no, it's <laughs> true. Know.
1: And, and if, if Tom Hanks is the face of that brotherhood, yeah. you know, who are you gonna root for more than that guy?
0: Right, so that's Yeah, I don't know if you. That's exactly right. I, <laughs> I wasn't even going to cast Tom Hanks. Uh, uh, you know, there was all these other action stars. They said, go get this guy or go get that guy or I don't want to say their names. They're all great actors. But I said to myself, I was all ready to pull the trigger on one of those action stars. And I asked myself like, but who does the world want to save the most? They want to save Tom Hanks the most. Yeah.
1: What is it about that guy that makes him so indelible in that way? What is the, his defining
0: quality I think in people your feel opinion? his goodness. I just think people mm-hmm. feel his basic goodness. And he's, you know, as far as an actor, he's entertaining, but he doesn't need to steal the show so he can actually, you know, you can actually love him at the same time. There's some actors, like in the case of, say, Jack Nicholson, amazing star. Or Michael Keaton, amazing star. But, you know, they play really, they often can really excel at very extreme characters. Whereas Tom Hanks, that's not what he really does. He doesn't really excel in a really extreme character. I don't think he probably would have been a great Batman, you know, or Mm. a great Joker. But he is certainly great at Big, and he's certainly great at Forrest Gump, and he's certainly great at, uh, you know, uh, Captain Sully. He's great at saving the world. He's great at He. You want... You root for him universally.
1: He can put on the costume of the everyman and embody our best aspirations of who we can be, yeah. I think, right? Yeah. Yeah. He has a different form of magic
0: that he performs.
1: When you are in the casting process. Mm. Like, is there a system? Like, how do you approach that to try to figure out, like, how does, how do you, I guess I would say, I would ask it this way. Like, how do you deploy your curiosity Mm. when you're trying to make those choices that are so instrumental in whether a movie's going to work or not?
0: Um, I ask questions that would lead to, does leads me to understand whether that person has anything that's authentic about them. In other words, if somebody doesn't say anything, if they all speak in generic terms, I know I I won't hire that person. Mm. (laughs) No matter what their credits are, I just won't do it. If they don't have um, a point of view that I would call, identify as intelligence— um, in other words, there are certain people there are, that just defy gravity mm-hmm. because they—it's not their accomplishments, but it's their point of view, you know, in the way they—in the way you communicate with them. It po- could be their point of view about politics. It could be their point of view about athletics. It could be their point of view about healthcare. But they have a point, you know, about what they eat, what they do, their daily process of life. If there's something unique in there, then I'm leaning in and I'm interested. Mm. Okay. So if anyone knows who Val Kilmer is, Val Kilmer played mm-hmm. many different roles. He was great at, he was great in heat. He did, he played Jim Morrison in, in the movie about the doors sure. for me and iconic. all of <laughs> Yeah, it was very iconic. <laughs> yeah. But prior to that, I hired him in a movie called Real Genius and I wasn't going to hire him at all at, because I didn't, think his, I didn't think his reading was particularly good, um, and he knew I wasn't going to hire him. So he waited for like four hours for me to leave at the end of the day. So he's sitting on a couch, and I'm on the 35th floor of a building in New York. That's where we're doing the casting. And he says, you mind I go down with you? And so before I get answer, he slips into the elevator. He puts a nickel between his fingers, his open hand, and he starts juggling it from finger to finger. Uh-huh. Flipping it from his index finger to his, all the way to his baby finger and then back to the thumb. And I thought, wow, that's a kind of magic unto itself. And I literally, by the time we hit the lobby, I hired him. Wow. Just because he did because, that thing, because that told you what. It told me that um, he can do he can do something that's very unique that I couldn't personally do. Um, he had the balls to wait it might have been five hours actually, to just get in the elevator with me and capture my attention, which he was very successful at doing it. So he was courageous, he was patient, he had internal grit, and um, I thought he was, ultim- at, at the end of the, uh, the ride, ride down, I didn't know if he was funny or not, but I found him charismatic because mm-hmm. he had the courage to do those things. We're
1: brought to you today by On. the soul. Subscribe to Soul Boom on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. Producing a movie is such a Herculean task, it's Sisyphean. You're pushing this boulder up a mountain. It's constantly trying to roll back on top of you. It's a miracle any movie gets made. And when a movie is good, it's like, you know, I mean, the number of things that have to go right for a movie to be good, let alone great, is astonishing, I think, that most people don't quite understand. And this town is littered with people who call themselves quote unquote producers who might spend you know, the better part of a decade trying to get one project made and then mm. it comes out and maybe it's not so good or whatever. Um, to have a career as legendary of, as yours, I mean, what, like 47 Oscar nominations at this yeah. point um, is, is just stunning. And so Thank if you had to like, you know, deconstruct the formula for that success, like what is, how have you been able to consistently you know create mass media box office successes movies that are mm-hmm. that are beloved that kind of withstand the test of time like what is the secret sauce there that you' that, that speaks to like your strengths that's kind of fueled your
0: success and, and empowered this track record that you have well from these curiosity conversations is yielded my knowledge or insight, Not complete knowledge and insight, but enough insight that it provides me with new, rich arenas to put um, characters. So if I like brotherhoods, all of a sudden I start thinking about the selfless nature of firemen. I don't really know much about firemen at all. Like almost nothing, you know, just other than... Um, you know, when there's a fire you call the firemen. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but I but I ended up making this movie called Backdraft that was very beloved by firemen. Um, you know, so I think by reaching out to people and learning about what they do for a living or bigger subjects or unique subjects allows me a curation system to not do something that everybody else is doing. So, I try not to follow anybody ever. I don't follow trends, I don't read data research, I never did, and I don't even prognosticate ever what's going to be successful. Oh, now in the box office, this is what's going to be successful. Or next year, everyone's going to want the Barbie movie. I, I, I don't know. I mean, in other words, it's a fu- the, it's having an, a curation system that is bro- very broad gives you the ability to understand what in the world, what subjects are interesting to you. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting to me just happens to turn out to be interesting to other people.
1: You have so, to you have to be in a place where you can trust that gut instinct and that intuition, though, right? Yeah, which which you've developed through being constantly curious and always learning and meeting with all different kinds of people. But, but I would imagine that got lodged early because your first movie splash, everybody said this is never going to work, and everybody said no, and blah blah blah, blah and you people. kind of like in a Sisyphean way push that boulder up a mountain, and it becomes this hit, which mm. then tells you, oh, like I. I can trust myself, even yeah. when everybody's telling me this is a bad idea
0: well that's th- thank you for studying that or knowing that or but that's it's very nice um, that 's true. It made me feel like, wow, nobody does know. I can trust myself. I can entrust my internal truth, you know my basic essence drove me towards that mm. because ultimately, even though you might learn a subject. You do have to tap into your own needs or your your own weaknesses often um, to find the the character and what they want and what makes them survive. In that case, it was all about sur- man's survival is through love, mm-hmm. and um, and it's hard to find real love. And so that was essentially just the basic truth of the movie. So you always have to have um, not... A producer's job is to be creatively and fiscally responsible. So for me, the creative responsibility is, is to understand the heartbeat of what the movie is and never lose track. And that's why we could make parenthood for example like because it's about something that we really believed in so the f- the, sh- the script would change form over and over again splash the script changed form over and over I mean in other words people would go that's a terrible script and I'd work on the script and then I'd get different writers and I just endlessly develop it just often just just tweaking things a little bit you know or rebalancing uh, the script but never losing sight of what my ultimate go- goal mission is. So you you have to have a goal mission. Right. And not and that's the flame that keeps something going for 10 years then you finally get it made. Sure. Um and the goal
1: mission project by project is creating something universal that speaks to us and our inner humanity that we can connect with emotionally and doing that through something very specific that's compelling enough to lure us into the movie theater, yes. basically.
0: Well, like 8 Eight Mile, the movie 8 Mile. I knew nothing about hip hop. This is with Eminem. I knew nothing about hip hop. 10 years before I even met Eminem, I, I uh, had this curiosity conversation with Old Dirty Bastard uh-huh. of the Wu-Tang Clan. I was in New York and I... You know, every week had to meet a new person. So I said, oh, my God, I'm going to meet this guy, ODB, Old Dirty Bastard. I, had, I thought it was an insane name, you know, because at that time people didn't have, you know, want to have crazy names like that <laughs> that were kind of degrading at the same time. In any event, so I meet ODB. I learn about the language of hip hop in the on the East Coast. And then I start to demystify what that language why it was there, what it was, what it represented. It represented the inner voice of the street and what was going to become the language of the the youth in America. And from ODB, I met with uh, Public Enemy, with Chuck D, and then Slick Rick, then LL Cool J. And all of a sudden I start to think, wow, this is, hip-hop is not a subculture. It is the, it's the culture. Right. So then I start thinking that. And then I later thought, or start, then I much later, I'm struggling with this for 10 years. I had Spike Lee help me a little bit. And, you know, I was going to do it as a series. Then as a movie with, I meet Eminem. And I realized that within his story is overcoming shame. And I thought, wow, I could relate to that because... I too had to overcome a lot of shame. We all have some shame. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's just sort of, did it stop you from something? And it stopped him from being able to look at an audience and, you know, rap the way he, and to show his talent. And so that was really what the movie was about. It's like overcoming your, you know, your 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 injuries, your personal and real injuries and getting to your talent, getting over those barriers, so you can actually express your talent.
1: Yeah, it. You know, you reflect back on that movie, and you think it's about his rise to superstardom, but it's mm. really not about that at all. Mm-mm. It's about him owning who he is, coming to terms with, and 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 you know, having some peace about his background, his upbringing and being self-actualized, you know, in that through his performance in that culminating scene where he's just owning that truth, which mm. is a universal thing. It's a very specific way of of channeling into something that most people have to go through in their lives. And I yeah. think that's why it connected so deeply. But the story of your initial meeting with Eminem is, is pretty wild because he was very resistant to your
0: wiles. Yeah, he was very, resi- I mean, mm. I met with him in my office, and it took a lot of effort to get him in there. And he wasn't a superstar then. He was a rising star. And he just wouldn't look at me, and he didn't really want to talk. And so I had to go to great lengths to get him to want to speak to me and communicate. So how did you build
1: that trust? How did you overcome that wall that he was throwing up?
0: Probably ultimately... When I got out of being, when I, when I was, there was a moment where I was just super desperate when he was ready to leave. And by being that desperate, it might've represented something to him like, wow, this guy really cares. Mm -hmm. But I've never asked him and I don't know. Um, But maybe sitting in my office, just as I'm the movie producer and he's the rising star, I don't know, maybe the roles so I stepped way out of my role and, and uh, again, just before he had his hand on the door to leave. And I, and I don't want to say what I said, but I, I just asked him like, please, you know, please stay. You can, you can communicate with me. Yeah. You said animate. Yeah, he did. Yeah. Um, and I thought, I, th- I said, come on, you can animate or something like that. And I thought, oh man, he just, he looked at me like he was going to kill me. But then he came back and talked. Uh-huh. So it was great. He, he, he's he's a gigantically talented, like gigantically. 100%. Yeah. Um,
1: this book, A Curious Mind, it came out in 2015 originally, right? Yes. Uh, then you wrote Face to Face, which is about the importance of personal contact. I think that came out in 2019. Yes. So why synthesize those two books and expand A Curious Mind and re-release
0: it now. Okay. Because my publisher asked me to. (laughs) 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 Um, Because I think people today are operating much more in the state of mind of curiosity. And if they're not, two things. Um, I think they are that curiosity, the word curiosity, uh, which overcomes I don't know, the shame of I don't know, Um, the word curiosity is much more in our lexicon since the book, and I think that now we're entering a totally new chapter of what we have to be curious about, which is the state of the world politically, but more importantly, on our personal lives and survival, AI. So, can we use AI one-on-one to to better our lives, Mm -hmm. or is it going, in some ways, to break down our life, either our livelihood or economics or replaces. So the more curious you are about that subject right now or these subjects right now, the more successful you will be in your job and the more successful you'll be as a human being. And, and I think the basic principles of a curious mind and fused together with face-to-face of art of human connection, which is really about just treating that face-to-face and eye contact as our human Wi-Fi. Because without that human Wi-Fi, nobody would have ever trusted me or sat with me for an hour to talk to me. Mm-hmm. They would have talked to me for a few minutes if I looked away or looked at my phone, they would have just, or if they felt I wasn't interested, or if I, my eye contact was not sincere, they would have left. Isaac Asimov, well, he did leave. Yeah, he did. That was the only <laughs> one that did leave. but. Edward Teller, I mean, I've met hundreds of Nobel laureates. They, I mean, I could just an endless amount, um, those people would not have left. Princess Di wouldn't have broken protocol and shared a bowl of ice cream with me, mm-hmm. you know, at the, uh, at the uh, premiere of Apollo 13.
1: A lot has happened since 2019, and even more since 2015, when when the first iteration of this book came out. Um, the political landscape has shifted completely. Uh, we endured a pandemic, which just basically eliminated all of mm-hmm. this face-to-face interpersonal you know, interaction that you speak of. It changed the workplace. It changed how we think about how we interact with people. Um, But, you know, Eminem is not giving you the green light to go forward on this movie if that meeting was conducted on a Zoom call. Like, it's it's not happening, right? not happening. uh, So, there is a certain kind of timeliness, like, yes, your publisher, you know, encouraged you to do this, but, you know, frankly, and you say it outright in the book, like, this is a very interesting moment that we find ourselves in where it is. we have an untethered relationship with the importance of person, you know, in person interactions with other human beings that has been tarnished by what we just endured. It gives us an appreciation for how much we need it, mm-hmm. but at the same time, we're still disengaged from it. People mm-hmm. don't go into the office, and, you know, we are doing more Zoom calls than we were before the pandemic. That's mm-hmm. just a fact. And that is fomenting this. Epidemic of loneliness. I had the Surgeon General on here and we went in deep on that. I heard
0: that one actually. Yeah. That was amazing.
1: So, you know, this is a very real thing. The antidote to which is being in communion with people, finding shared common ground, applying that curiosity as a vehicle or an engine for empathy because empathy is what we lack and empathy is what we need most right now in order to resolve the very serious problems that are driving us apart from each other, threatening the fabric of democracy and our yeah. ability to really cohere as a society. Like these, yes, like engage people with curiosity, but what's behind that is something mm-hmm. I think much more profound and 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 fundamental that you're getting at with all of this.
0: Well, thank you. Um, I would trust you by the way. Um, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have a lot of hum- you. you're well-read I could tell you, actually read the books, and um, and you have so much humility. Well, I care about this, and I'm
1: a practitioner of these things that you talk about. Mm. And you know, when podcasting during the pandemic all went to Zoom, like I, you know, I had to do a few of those, and I just I hated it because I need to be, I need. It's not just yes, the eye contact. We're sharing an energy here. We you are. Know? And you can't can't put words to it and you also can't place a value on that. Mm. That is at the center of everything. Like I have this phrase like conversation matters because conversation is a vehicle Mm. into another person's experience that allows you to breed empathy and understanding and overcome the baked in biases that we all have. And it allows us to suspend our judgments and communicate more openly. And that's the only way that we can
0: solve the problems that we face. True. It's a great reminder, actually, um, that we do when we're together, because I'm just thinking about that, um, we operate on an energy or vibration, whereas on a Zoom, you definitely don't have that. That's Mm -hmm. completely absent. And so your way that you would detect somebody's truth or the things that we were just talking about, those core values, they, they're not really, um, live, they live in that energy and they're not really living on the zoom. The other thing about zooms, cause I spent a lot of time do, you know, writing and producing comedies no one's particularly funny on a zoom. Mm. You know, there's not a lot of laughter on zooms. Laughter is an important lubricant. It's really, you know, meaningful. And the writer's room was really
1: one of the things that was under threat during the recent strike that just got resolved. Yes. Too, right? Like the magic occurs in the energy that's shared by a group of really talented, funny
0: people. A hundred percent. And
1: when they're just doing it on a Zoom call, yeah, maybe they can come up with a few jokes. It's not the same though. Yeah. And it's not a problem that AI is going to solve.
0: No, it's not. Curious to see what'll. I mean, what is, your, what is your uh, inclination around that? Around AI? Yeah. Um, in relation to which, okay. Uh, well, there's m- many people in the te- world of tech, and I'm sure you know because you've interviewed them, that believe that we're going to survive and succeed better with AI. Um, but then, like, who will survive and succeed <laughs> better? Will it be the common man or will it just, or will it be... The elite man, you Mm -hmm. know, the, the, so I don't know the answer to that really. I, I use AI, I use open AI, I use um, a few other sources in testing the, a story. So if I have a story and then I want to state and I want to write about it differently or, or find a word that I might not have thought about in relation to the story. Well, I had to give mm-hmm. a a birthday speech for my wife the other day f- to my wife. And so I thought, I'll write down all the virtues of my wife and then create a, and turn that into a narrative. And then I thought, why wouldn't I just feed that into ChatGPT? So then I did. And of course, I couldn't read that because not that I'm above it or something. I just don't think I could... I'm just not good at reading speeches you know some people Mm -hmm. are I'm not I I sort of try I try to understand the base you know feel the basic principles of it and know that those truths live inside of me and then like you pointed out earlier just talk about it.
1: You are listening to this podcast because you care about improving your health and your well-being but You have a whole thing on public speaking, leading from the heart, and like just yeah. being like how the, you know honesty and kind of being real is m- much more powerful than whatever words are coming out of your mouth. And yeah, because people buy that; they don't even right. buy your they're, words. They're reading your energy, and yeah. and and if you can show them your soul, which yeah. is something AI doesn't have, you're you're gonna you're you're in a better position to win them over than through the the cogency of your argument, right? Yes. And so AI being this kind of soulless thing, it can be this tool. It can actually be a, a, an incredibly powerful instrument. We use it for stuff here all the time. Yeah. Um but, you know, it doesn't have a consciousness. And so I think it's important to be cognizant of yeah. its shortcomings because um creativity is our is is our gift right and i mm-hmm. think you, you and you talk about this also like how technology in general not just ai but even you know going online is great if it's actually nourishing your curiosity and 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 kind of empowering you to dig deeper and 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 really go further but it can also work as um as, as kind of an impediment to your curiosity because you think your curiosity has been satisfied. So if you yeah. prompt ChatGPT or you, go, you Google something and you think that's the end of the story, you're not, really, mm-hmm. you're not really engaging in your curiosity and you're not gonna find that innovative, creative solution that nobody ever thought of before.
0: So true, I, I, because it was my wife's 50th birthday mm. and we're having it at a friends of ours house with about 70 people. And, um, you know, I think I'm probably a good speak. I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm a good public speaker, but I get nervous every time. <laughs> and, and so when I did the ChatGPT and I kept, uh, you know, reiterate, you know, iterating upon it, um, that does tell you what to say. I mean, it, it, it re it's using your words, your prompts. Uh, for the most part, but it doesn't give you like what I, I didn't look to that at all. And instead of talking about my love, I I was able to communicate it in a way that I was showing you my love. (laughs) So showing her, my wife. Um, And that's what worked. Like people cheered, you know, they all Uh liked that because it was, it was, you know, rudimentary, but it was from the soul. And uh, people felt that I showed my love Mm. instead of, you know, from a distance, just talking about it.
1: Right, right. How has this new era of Hollywood where the streamers are front and center changed what you do? Because to me, it feels like on the one hand, there's never been more opportunity to tell stories because there's mm. so many outlets, mm-hmm. um, so many opportunities to get a project made or or mm. to or have have a, a story told. But it's become our 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 culture has become so diffuse. Um, there is no monoculture anymore, and that's probably a good thing. But at the same time, you know, shy of a, a big Marvel Marvel movie, mm. it's close to impossible now to to create something that has a resonant cultural impact beyond like whatever's happening mm-hmm. this week?
0: Um, it's hard. <laughs> yeah. Well, because there's so many deflections. There's um, from watching a movie, there's more live sports than ever. I mean, things like that. Well, there's just a lot going on. Uh, oh, specifically to the point of streaming. Um, it's harder to create a cultural moment with streaming, I think. Now, um, there are times that something really, were, like a documentary, the Michael Jordan documentary, that mm-hmm. was a streamer. Sure. That was really amazing. But I mean, you have to be A++ to be able to create a cultural moment with something that streams, in my opinion. Because there's not external tactile marketing. Mm-hmm. It's all digital marketing. So you're not really feeling something, uh, the marketing part, the framing of your piece. Um, I mean, Oppenheimer, for example, or Barbie, those two are the biggest movies, um there was outdoor advertising. There were in the elevator. It was on bus stops. There was all sorts of things. And and you felt, and would you just felt there was a tactile kind of communication with you that um, helped frame seeing that movie. Mm-hmm. And that's why people, I think, like, you know, well, there's a Taylor Swift component or there's, um, you know, basketball, there's Super Bowl. Just being there is makes a huge difference. Um, and it lives those, mo- the things that happen that are great happen in a more magnified way to, to the culture, I think.
1: But does it feel like they're fewer and far between now? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And does that change the nature of how you approach a project or you still just do it the way that you you know how to do it?
0: Well, fortunately for for me, um, a lot of the streamers, you know, whether it's Apple or Amazon or Netflix, um, you know, they're they're all kind of streamers now, but or Disney, they um, fortunately they all want imagine movies of the 2000, which are you know like they go just make the movies that you used to make, um, which are tour de force films, meaning. You know, it's like one like a uh, say, a beautiful mind. It was mm-hmm. about John Nash played by uh, Russell Crow, mm-hmm. or Denzel Washington playing Frank Lucas, an American gangster, or you know, um, there's you know those those movies of the 2000s I have so many more, that are just driven by, for the most part, a single performance about a subject. That leads you to, usually leads you to cry, <laughs> you know, either that's because of the celebration of greatness, or sadness along the way, and then greatness. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I try to leave have every movie that we work on have hope, even even if it's hard.
1: Yeah, or in or some form of redemption.
0: Yes, redemption for right. sure. Um, why is storytelling important? uh because it gets you storytelling is important because it's it should be entertaining, but it should nourish your soul in the same way the, one of the great books of all time could do. But the the beauty of storytelling in a cinematic and sonic form together, or that it reaches you on every level, you know, on a cell on a cellular level, like it really it can really be therapeutic. You can learn so much about yourself. I mean, I, I got into the, the, the movies that I make because I saw, you know, I didn't know, I didn't go to cinema school. I mean, I teach at the cinema school, <laughs> but I didn't go there. Um, uh, but the movie that really, really made a difference for me that I felt elevated my state of consciousness and elevated me as a person was E.T., I saw ET, and the conventional—you know—you'd go to movies and you'd fight with lines, and you'd fight with the—you know—the vendor, and you want to get popcorn, and then you want to save your seat, you want to do all this stuff. It's a really, it was, and people are honking and pushing. And I remember at the end of the movie ET, nobody honked, nobody pushed. It was a, the vibe was entirely different. Everybody was elevated to a more peaceful more um, thoughtful state of mind. That was my experience. So I thought if I can have movies do that, take people on journeys or adventures in a story to get them to that state of mind. Today, I want to make movies that lead us to the state of mind of feeling that, that there's faith. We're grounded by faith and that we should be aware attention to that it's mm-hmm. not religion it's it's just faith you know it's doing things abiding by the golden rule <laughs> you know it's all those things just about one-on-one human connection
1: also this sense of possibility yeah and that and that humans are are fundamentally good
0: that seems to you know recur i in that think that for sure yeah um and Wars often end by, by having people get together. Seldom does, it, does that backfire where you get together to help demystify one another, to realize we're here surviving mm-hmm. on, the same, on the same planet for similar reasons. Um, does that turn into something bad? It usually is, turns into something good.
1: What's the movie you have yet to make that you've always wanted to make that needs to get made before you- I'm gonna you? make a modern <laughs> army movie right now. Oh, uh, Well, you open the book with this whole experience oh, yeah. <laughs> of going to Fort Irwin. I've done yeah. that. I've done that trip where you did take you? the the Blackhawks to- yeah. yeah, from Burbank. It's unbelievable. What got unbelievable. you to do that? Um, my friend Jesse Albert uh, hosts these for certain oh, individuals time to time. and yeah he uh you know asked me if I would come and so I did I didn't I think you were there two days right I did yeah. a day with a bunch of people and did the whole thing where you you yeah. go everywhere and you you use all the shoot stuff shoot guns you, you go in you tanks all, yeah. you do the
0: whole thing yeah It's wild yeah it, it was wild and now I'm going to go to Fort Campbell which is all the um aviation helicopters and everything cuz I'm it's part of this movie
1: the the um trick is What is, like, the movie isn't, like, the army. The movie is, what like, what is it that you identified through that experience of visiting Fort Irwin and and meeting with that general Mm. that got you excited about the story that could potentially be told there?
0: It's so much about we stick together. You live, I live, you die, I die. You know, it's really... um, It's really... About humanity, basically, and that that it's hard being in, in any of the services is difficult, but it also is rewarding. And it also, there's times that because you're sharing, you're so intimate with your brothers mm-hmm. or brothers and sisters at this point, that um, you have a lot of laughs too. So it's a story about brotherhood. Yeah. Yeah. I only use four th- themes.
1: Yeah. So the four <laughs> themes are... Uh, family. This is the big secret. The Yay! secret. to Imagine
0: Entertainment's, <laughs> you know, m- many decade run. Okay, so it's <laughs> brotherhood, uh, self respect. Like people all want, they thrive for self. They are driven towards self respect, and um, so, and, and that's in. A, that's ultimately what. what uh, eight miles about self-respect. It was self-actualizing to get there, mm-hmm. but it's about it's about respect. Um, so it, so family, brotherhood, self-respect, and I had one other one, but I, oh, love. Yeah,
1: the smallest one.
0: <laughs> <laughs> anyway,
1: on <laughs> the subject of these curiosity conversations, yes. I think it's important. I mean, first of all, I'm curious as to why you think we as a culture are like undervalue curiosity like why we even need to talk about it as something <laughs> that we should cultivate because it's so mm. obvious to me and then second to that like i think it's important to point out that throughout mm. the your life where you've been pursuing these conversations mm. i want to disabuse people of the idea that they were that they were like directly tethered to some movie project like mm. okay. a lot of these movies came out of conversations that you had with people. But they weren't Completely on unrelated yeah, to exactly. the subject matter of that. Yes. It's like the, yeah. it's through osmosis, through just being engaged as yeah. a way of being, like being mm-hmm. a curious person mm-hmm. that has, you know, provided like a lens on the world and a way of filtering um, experience that creates the possibility
0: for these ideas around movies mm-hmm. that you've created. So first of all, I look at it like this. The reason I never did a podcast, because people did say, you ought to have a podcast, is I felt like the conversations I was doing shouldn't be commodified in any way. That they're really just, I was on this one-on-one curiosity path to learn. And... I felt like many of the people that were sharing their story with me, like Carl Sagan and people like that, they might not have wanted to. There weren't podcasts at that time, mm-hmm. really. And um, and they weren't thought of as so favorably the early stages of them, as as my recollection goes. And so, so basically, they weren't attached ever to a project. And I felt like if I approach a person and it's, it's, about, and it's goal directed. That means it's transactionally directed. I thought they would sense it was transactional. They wouldn't want to do it. I don't want to be transactional. I just want to have a conversation that's good that helps me, Brian. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I always want. It, I always had a goal in mind. Was I am going to be interesting enough to them that they feel really good about this, com- this hour they spent with me, and they'll feel like it was the best date they'd ever had. <laughs> and so I love these conversations, and out of the hundreds, if not thousands, of conversations I had, um, not one person individually turned into a subject, it was really just the insights I gleaned from the conversations, or the little nuances that I g- got out of mm-hmm. the conversation, that actually became, um, uh, that just became useful to me in right. some way or valuable to me.
1: Right. And an example of that, I think, would be the relationship between the Chilean dissident and yes. A Beautiful Mind, yes, which are seemingly completely unrelated and yet informed each other almost perfectly for you.
0: Yes. Well, because what happened is, um, and I'll tell this story quickly. I met a woman named Veronica DeNegre. I met her through Sting, who was an early curiosity conversation I had. So Sting, the musician, I thought this guy was actually like a school teacher and now he's the biggest rock star in the world. I mean, I don't understand how that transition works. And so I thought I'm gonna meet this I'm going to meet Sting. Mm-hmm. I meet Sting. You know, he might have liked me a little bit. I mean, not tremendously, but enough that he invited me a year later to go to a barbecue. I went to the barbecue, and, and this woman named Veronica De Negre was there that he took on the Amnesty tour with he and Bruce Springsteen. She was um, held in prison and was tortured in prison for about six months in Chile under the Pinochet reg, uh, regime. And, of course, you gravitate towards the harshest word, torture, and you, you'll you ask, like, what was it like to be tortured? But I thought, I did ask that for a second, then I thought, I'm going to be more interesting than that. I'm going to say, how did you survive? Because that at least, at least leads to hope, and it's probably a question that people don't ordinarily ask, like, what was the process of survival? Mm-hmm. And she said that her process of survival, while she was unpredictably being tortured every day, was that she created a parallel story in her mind. She has one narrative of what's actually going on in real time, um, the to- this torture part. And then there's this other story that's not going on in real time. It's an altern- alternate reality. And that narrative is only in her mind, like a a story that she's telling herself to give her the sustenance, the ability to survive. So I thought later, when I thought, uh, much later, I thought, I wanna make a movie that will help destigmatize mental disability. So that's very unrelated to Veronica DeNegre and being tortured in Chile, has nothing to do with that. But by doing these curiosity conversations, each human being that I met, whether it's Veronica Denegre or Carl Sagan, they they served as being a dot on a greater constellation of dots that lived in my mind, and often those constel that constellation of dots, although unrelated, found time periodically would connect a dot. So, her ability to survive was creating a new, a story that would help her survive. What is this, and now I'm making a movie about a schizophrenic. What does the schizophrenic do? They live in alternate reality. So I thought, well, why don't I show what an alternate lo- reality looks like in a schizophrenic's mind, and that will do several things to the movie of the John Nash story. One, it will make it horrifying It'll show an audience really what it looks like to be in somebody's mind that is mentally disabled, either bipolar or schizophrenic or any other mental disability. It shows what that other narrative looks like. That will help us as a viewer have compassion for that person instead of just driving past them Mm -hmm. when we see them on the street screaming at a car or something or a street lamp. The other thing it did was it enabled me, as a dramatist, to make the movie instead of a, in fact, a straight drama. We made it a thriller. So a thriller actually elevates the popular, the chances of pop, critical of of commercial popularity. Thrillers have more propulsion, drive in the narrative. Mm-hmm. So therefore, audience is going. Oh my God, what's going to happen now? In a drama, it's more. Uh, there's it's more slightly more melancholy, <laughs> and and so it changed the genre to a thriller, which helped it become hugely um, commercially successful.
1: Right, the thriller genre acts as a Trojan horse. Yeah. to bring people in and show them a different perspective on mental health that that helps like normalize
0: the conversation yes, around. Exactly. That. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so that so very, very unrelated. And then weirdly, I was able to relate to Apollo 13 much better, which was later, because that was about survival as well. And I thought, you know, what's it like it different you know it made me think of the subject of survival mm. and the subject of survival for them is just like coping with the d- difficulty putting a square peg into a round hole all those things and um and so the subject of survival became a subject for me Um, that I was able to expand upon in many different movies, actually. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah.
1: Um, I have to let you go, but the last thing I'll say is, uh, for somebody who's listening to this, who's thinking about curiosity a little bit differently than they were an hour ago, who's thinking, yeah, but I'm nervous to talk to people, or, you know, I'm not Brian Grazier, I don't have fancy friends, perhaps a few words to leave people with around how to approach engendering a little more curiosity in your life by engaging with the people in your environment?
0: Well, look, I did it for 20 years where I wasn't famous, so anyone can do it. You just, all the people that you know of or know or know of in your universe, why don't you just ask one of them to have a curiosity conversation with you? And so it's the teacher across the street or the or, um, insurance salesman down the street, whoever it is. You often think of those jobs as being really um, maybe not interesting or banal. But um, if you actually have talked to somebody, you will find uh, the magic within them. You'll find something that interests you. I mean, we were on break for two, a couple of minutes, and I was super curious about how you got into being a um, a podcaster, which mm. you did before that. And then you told me you were a lawyer, and I thought, wow, I would have never guessed that. Mm. So just the surprise of that was interesting. And then you did Ultra Marathon. What are they called? Ultra what? Yeah, you got it. Ultras. Ultras. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you don't want to see. You're too <laughs> humble to say. Ultra physical events. <laughs> yeah, that's it. You got it. <laughs> double the size of a marathon. I mean, I can't even imagine a marathon, much less double the size.
1: I love it. Thank you.
0: Okay, thanks. Yeah, See you. I appreciate it. All right. Yeah, cheers. <laughs> <laughs> cheers.
1: That's it for today. Thank you for listening. I truly hope you enjoyed the conversation. To learn more about today's guest,